Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello, and welcome to our viewers. My name is Lauren Kiger, and I am Digital Content Manager at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today is Scott Kennedy, Senior Advisor and Trustee Chair in Chinese Business and Economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. We're proud to say that Scott, a leading authority on Chinese economic policy, is also a fellow in the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. The topic of today's interview is China's recent bid to join the free trade agreement known as the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the CPTPP for short. Scott, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Lauren, I'm delighted to be with you. And once a pipper, always a pipper. <laughs> Terrific. Let's start with a brief overview of the CPTPP. Please tell us a bit about the original intentions of this free trade agreement and its impact to date. Well, originally, it was an idea proposed by New Zealand uh, around 2005 or six, and it was meant to just include a small number of countries that they traded with to try and fill in some of the blanks in the global regulatory framework uh, beyond the WTO. But uh, they approached the United States and then uh, late in the Bush administration, the Obama administration, they started to think about this more broadly to expand to include a variety of countries from the Asia Pacific region uh, and including Japan. And then they were able to in 2011 and 12 persuade Japan to sign on. And then in the third iteration, as the uh, relationship between the US and China became more strained and it looked like China was moving away from its commitments to the WTO and to integrate into the global economy on the world's standards, TPP then became seen as a way to create a new type of framework uh, where China probably would be on the outside to begin with, but as with joining WTO, it would set a high bar and be a, an opportunity to provide additional pressure and incentive for China for a new wave of reform. That's what uh, the U.S. tried to do until through 2016, after it completed the negotiations and was ready to join. And then in 2017, everyone knows that uh, President Trump withdrew the U.S. from the TPP. And surprisingly, Japan and the other 11 members renegotiated the agreement with just them going from TPP to CPTPP. Uh, and that's where we are now with others being interested in potentially uh, joining this group. Great. And that leads us to September 16th of this year uh, when China formally applied to join the CPTPP. For starters, why does China want to join this agreement? And is its bid likely to be approved by the current member countries? Yeah, um, I'm not exactly sure why the Chinese want to join. And I think, uh, there are, I think there are different reasons amongst Chinese, not a single answer. There are some uh, liberal economic reformers in China who see China moving in a state direction uh, where the party state has way more interventionist in the economy and society than they were. And the disciplines of TPP would require a drawback 
of that and get China again on the path of integration. And so some of them to continue reform and opening advocate that. I think there's others who think what China needs to do is it's in this global competition with the United States. It doesn't want to be isolated. So it needs to uh, counter US moves and join as many international agreements as it can. Uh, earlier, uh, I, last year, it joined RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic uh, Partnership with 15 other countries in the region. Uh, TPP would be another. And so uh, for them, it would be about outflanking the United States. And at the same time, despite TPP's high requirements for membership, trying to join in a way that waters down those uh, commitments so China can continue with its current economic model. And so speaking a little bit more about the specific provisions within the CPTPP, um, what might serve as a roadblock for China to join today or in the future? Um, in the past, CPTPP members made exceptions for Vietnam regarding their state-owned enterprises, for example. Could China accept, expect this same treatment? Well, um, there's 30 chapters to the agreement uh, that apply for all members. And there are also side notes and bilateral agreements uh, that complement those. And it's all available for everyone to see, but it fills in a lot of the blanks, not all of the blanks of the WTO and other international institutions, but covers a lot. Uh, not only reductions, further reductions in tariffs for goods and agriculture uh, and services, but also uh, requirements on how state-owned enterprises should behave, rules regarding treatment of inward uh, direct investment, the handling of data uh, for e-commerce, social media, things like that, uh, labor rights, uh, the environment. It's actually extremely broad. Um, you could imagine that many of these areas, China, given the role of the state and its dominant priority of growing fast, potentially at the expense of other things, might not be well prepared to meet many of these high standard uh, requirements. But you have to go through lawyerly, line by line, in each of the chapters of the TPP, and you'll see that a lot of these demands are somewhat squishy, that they are negotiable, that, for example, as you mentioned, uh, Lauren, with Vietnam being able to com come into compliance with on the state-owned enterprise chapter, um, despite the fact that they have such a large sector, it's not as large as China's, but it's still quite significant. But uh, they also were able to uh, get a longer transition to meet those commitments, uh, some uh, reductions in those. And you could see what we would basically have a negotiation between China and the members along those uh, specific issues. But aside from that question of whether China could meet any individual commitments is whether or not members want China in at all, regardless of what China's economic policies would be. And each current member essentially has a veto over the uh, any new member that might want to join. You did mention the World Trade Organization, so I'd like to uh, go there for just a second. Uh, China's bid to join the CPTPP has drawn numerous comparisons to when it first joined the WTO back in 2001 and made a lot of commitments to liberalize that never really completely materialized. Do you think these comparisons are warranted? 
And how is the CPTPP in 2021 the same or different from the situation with the WTO 20 years ago? Yeah, um, there's definitely some similarities and some, some differences. Uh, certainly the idea of using membership or the possibility of membership in this organization as a form of gaiatsu of external pressure to push China to make economic reforms is what a lot of uh, current members and the United States, which was originally pushing uh, uh, TPP uh, for what they were interested in. Um, that said, um, the economic impact of the agreement is not as large as when China joined the WTO. There, you were really talking about uh, China changing every tariff line in its tariff schedule, uh, making wholesale changes to hundreds of regulations and laws, implementing that across the bureaucracy and down to the local level. It was a full-scale effort fundamentally changing China's relationship with the global economy. Here, these are very significant issues, uh, but their economic impact, at least in the short term, isn't as dramatic as WTO membership would be. And that, as a result, may give the TPP members or the US standing behind the scenes a little bit less leverage to get China to comply. The other thing is that China learned through its membership in the WTO how to officially come into compliance without meeting the spirit of its obligations. Um, and I think that experience, one, gives China a leg up for how they are thinking about what they would do with regard to TPP, but it also makes others a little bit worried that if you have China into the TPP, it won't achieve what you really want because uh, it's not airtight enough. It doesn't, its disciplines are not as precise as they need to be. And China is so large, way more, uh, much larger than it was in 20, in 2001 when it joined the WTO. Uh, it's unclear if it'll be as, have that decisive effect that WTO membership has had. Of course, we can't talk about CPTPP without mentioning the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, as you've, you've mentioned before. Um, of course, this is another free trade agreement in the region in which China was a founding member. Um, what are the big differences between CPTPP and RCEP, and what are the advantages for China to be party to both agreements if sure. its CPTPP application is approved? Yeah, well, RCEP actually is really uh, an ASEAN initiative of, of the countries in Southeast Asia. And uh, countries in Southeast Asia have a whole variety of economic systems and approaches towards the global economy. And their participation in free trade agreements, uh, other types of arrangements with their neighbors and beyond tend to be relatively superficial. They focus on tariff schedules, traditional trade in goods, um, and, and basic elements of making trade and investment uh, easier. But they are not as detailed and complicated, and they don't touch a lot upon a lot of the thorniest issues which uh, other agreements, including TPP, deal with. So it's a relatively low standard agreement, a low bar for membership, um, and it was pretty easy for the Chinese to join because it's very similar 
to China's existing other free trade arrangements that it has uh, around the world. Um, and so joining TPP would turn the focus towards some of these uh, other kinds of issues, 21st century economy issues, uh, other kinds of reform. So it'd be, it would be complementary, um, and it certainly would have much more political effect. Joining RCEP is certainly a, a, a way to contrast China's success in joining new agreements and signing new ones compared to the US being less forward-leaning uh, now. Uh, the Chinese also at the end of 2020 uh, reached an agreement uh, on investment uh, with the EU, uh, which now may not be fully implemented uh, because of, of tensions between the two. But nevertheless, it's part of that overall Chinese initiative. Uh, TPP is much higher standard, covers a, a whole variety of different issues. Uh, and so if, if the Chinese were able to join and the US was on the sidelines, then one could say, ooh, the US looks like it's being isolated uh, and uh, in significant amount of trouble uh, with regard to setting the rules for uh, the global economic order. And that transitions perfectly into talking about US-China relations, which is my next question. Um, you've given us some background on the TPP and how the US um, backed out of that in 2017. Um, following China's recent bid to join, do you think there's any appetite from the Biden administration to rethink America's approach to this agreement? Not very much, I'm afraid. I, I, I personally think this, the original idea that the US had uh, after the New Zealand, uh, after New Zealand got it launched, that to use TPP to fill in the blanks and put some pressure on China to have a new wave of reform is still a smart strategy. And even if the Chinese weren't interested, even if they didn't, weren't involved in the global economy, it'd still be a good idea for the United States. But the politics of Washington, at least as the Biden administration reads them, is that TPP is a political loser. It uh, alienates most likely uh, important elements of the Democratic Party's support, uh, would probably get them in trouble with certain elements uh, up on the Hill in both parties. Uh, and it, since its economic benefits are relatively limited, at least in the short term, and they're harder to point to than like reducing you know, Chinese tariff barriers, uh, it's gonna be hard to sell it as an economic win. Um, so I think their predilection is to look for other ways to expand US economic ties in the Asia Pacific, maybe with an agreement on just digital trade with, with countries in the Indo-Pacific or through building coalitions on the defensive side of the ledger as they've been doing with the EU, the Japanese and the Koreans with regard to export controls and investment restrictions. Now, that all said, you should never say never. It is certainly possible that given the fact that the Chinese, South Korea, Indonesia, Thailand, the UK, Taiwan have all shown interest uh, and are probably lining up to apply as we saw the Taiwanese apply soon after China submitted its application. Some of these folks may get in and the larger the economic gravity of the TPP membership, the more it may push the US itself to consider rejoining. And so don't say never, uh, but politically it uh, would be a large step for anyone uh, in 
the United States to take. As you just mentioned, Taiwan, um, we can discuss that for a minute. Um, you know, days after Beijing moved to join the CPTPP, Taiwan also made its bid to, bid to join. Um, you know, is Taiwan's application likely to move forward? And how does this complicate things in the region politically, as you were just talking about? You know, I think if it was just based on economics, compare Taiwan's current regulatory system to the text of the TPP and what's required. Uh, if you do that gap analysis, there's a variety of places where Taiwan still needs to make some reforms, uh, but it's not massively huge. In fact, over the last few years since the original text was issued, the Taiwanese have done that analysis. They've already changed a variety of laws and they know what's left to be done. So from an economic perspective, that, that gap isn't huge, it's bridgeable. In addition, I think it would be very smart for the Taiwanese to do so. They are part of global supply chains uh, in high tech and in the type of industries that TPP is most interested in able to facilitate growth. So it would make a big sense for them. Also for uh, allies and like-minded countries, it would make sense as well. So the Taiwanese have been looking to sign a bilateral trade agreement or investment agreement with the US, which may bring some benefits to them, but joining TPP actually would be more important. But whether it's uh, Taipei or Beijing, I think the big obstacles to whether or not they'll join are political. For the Chinese, it's certain that the Americans and their closest allies do not want to let Beijing outflank the United States. And they would, for that reason, say no. For the Taiwanese, they know that Chinese don't want them to get in and, the, and there are enough uh, folks in the TPP who want to maintain good economic and diplomatic relations with the Chinese that they would be hard pressed to vote yes on Taiwan's membership. So probably the most likely way in which the Taiwanese would be able to get in is if the US were to change its mind and to lean very far forward for itself to get in and say, you know what? One of the requirements for us to join this agreement is that the Taiwanese come along with us and so have a wave and maybe not just those two, maybe others as well. Uh, otherwise, I think if it's just a question of Taiwan up or down, uh, you're gonna find at least one, probably more of the others uh, saying that's a, that's a no-go. So that would be, you know, major serious politics, countries having to quote unquote, two sides, which they really don't want to have to do. You know, some have said that China's bid to join the CPTPP is a win-win for China. Even if its application is not approved, it shows that China is deeply invested in economic integration in the region as it's shown through RCEP, Belt and Road, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, et cetera. All while the US has been largely on the sidelines. What type of message do you think China is sending with this bid to join the CPTPP? Uh, I, I think uh, that's exactly right. Uh, that uh, in terms of PR, uh, the narrative, uh, it's taking attention off of what China is doing with common prosperity, uh, crackdown in Hong Kong, uh, Xinjiang, human rights issues, um, the growing intervention in private companies, um, lots of those things and saying, you know, hey, look over here. We are reformists. We're trying to provide leadership and global economic governance. Uh, China's growth is good for the world, uh, et cetera. Meanwhile, the U.S. 
uh, can't find north, it, it can't pass infrastructure, it can't invest in its economy, it won't join any of these agreements. Uh, it's, a, it's a drag on uh, the, reforming the global international order. That narrative is supported by this application. I do think that there's gonna be some folks that are persuaded by that and they will focus on that shining light of the possibility of China joining and rethinking back to the 1990s and 2001 in the story of, of the WTO and contrasting with what's, how Washington views these agreements. But I don't think everyone is gonna be convinced. So I think uh, every, there's also a significant amount of attention and knowledge and awareness and anxieties about changes going on in Chinese politics at home, uh, of uh, growing authoritarianism, uh, human rights questions. And so, uh, and knowing that if China did apply, it would be very difficult to get them to meet the spirit of the commitments that, that TPP are meant to address. So I think you'll probably see mixed reaction and maybe that's good enough for the Chinese. And it's certainly good enough for their domestic audience. Chinese want to feel like nationalism isn't just simply defensive and negative and about war, but also China providing global leadership. So I think uh, those folks who think this is good politics for the Chinese uh, are exactly right. So looking forward, what would you say are the next steps for China in the application process to join the CPTPP? And in your eyes, what are some of the key hurdles in this next phase of the process or things that we should keep an eye out for moving forward? Sure. So I think there's really two tracks that this goes on. First is the standard track of what uh, new potential members would do. And that is, and then the second is the broader questions. So on the substance of the official track, and TPP has never had expanded membership, so this is going to be new for everyone. But basically, since every current member has a veto, it's uh, the new applicant essentially has to engage with all 11 of them. Uh, and figure out where they stand. So my expectation is that the Chinese are in the beginning processes of, in, of those consultations with current members. And I don't expect any of those members to just slam the door in China's face and say, hey, we're not even gonna talk to you. That would be bad politics on their, their part as well. So let's see what those conversations look like. We probably won't hear a lot of it, um, but it's something to pay attention to. There will be, you know, some effort to do this in, in uh, over the next several months. There is a separate side of this, which is there's going to be an effort by the U.S. Um, and I would imagine perhaps Canada, Australia, and Japan to already have essentially concluded that regardless of what China may commit on paper, uh, that they couldn't foresee uh, accepting China into the agreement uh, unless somehow the U.S. changed its mind. So there will be two levels of, of the process of actual sort of the quotidian normal consultation over the substance and a political diplomatic conversation going on behind the scenes. And we'll have to watch both of those uh, to see how the story unfolds. Great, so switching towards the more corporate side of things, Scott, um, what about Chinese companies? What do you think they think about joining the CPTPP? Would this be something that's helpful for them or would the higher standards of the agreement potentially be too, too much for them? Um, 
you know, I wish, Lauren, that I could give you an easy, quick answer to this. Um, but one of the downsides of the pandemic, and there are many, uh, is, is that I can't get jet lag these days like I'd really like to. Uh, and none of us who work on China uh, can travel there easily. And that's the most important way that one would be able to answer that question because you'd really, you can't just read what uh, is in the Chinese media. You really need to talk to Chinese companies, industry associations uh, to figure out. But my guess is that there's gonna be a, a group of elite Chinese companies that want to uh, use TPP to become more internationally competitive, not just in the Chinese market, but globally. Uh, and that those disciplines actually would help them, particularly against some of their domestic competitors that couldn't meet those standards. Uh, and so uh, you could think of China's most advanced, most successful uh, internet firms, or some of those in, in high tech manufacturing that really want to be a part of global markets uh, in electric vehicles, um, in robotics, in some areas of medical devices, uh, even in pharma, you know, China's building its own uh, intellectual property. But I think there's also going to be others uh, that would be much more concerned about the onerous commitments and certainly state-owned enterprises uh, may find themselves in harm's way. Uh, and rules regarding expanding access to investment in China by foreigners, uh, commitments to labor rights, those would be really high bars uh, for not just companies, particularly locally state-owned companies where the local governments and the parties' uh, organizations would have a really hard time meeting some of those commitments if they require genuine constraints and disciplines on their behavior. I really hope there's a time not only where uh, we can figure out how China is going to get back in, at, at some point joined possibly, but we could figure out the lay of the land in China. And so... Uh, that requires us to be able to uh, get jet lag at some point uh, or, or change the way that we uh, learn about what's going on in China, which I know the National Committee uh, is uh, providing leadership on. So I don't have a, it's a, and it's a long winded way of saying, I don't know, I'm guessing, but it's something that we really need to pay attention to. Because at the end of the day, yes, you know, Xi Jinping and the top leadership uh, have the final say, or in Chinese, but it really matters what Chinese industry thinks uh, to determine not only whether or not China will join, but if they do join, what the effect will be on China's economy and the global economy. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for sharing your insights on this topic. You've certainly given us a lot to think about moving forward. Many thanks as well to all of our viewers who have tuned in for this interview. We hope you will continue to engage with the National Committee's programming and interviews in the future. Until then, take care and thanks for watching. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.